When attempting to predict how radiation will influence a complex system, it's often useful to assume that the system in question is a uniform, fully understood, fully mapped, and predictable object. Rather than trying to understand the full complexity of the Amazon rainforest, then, when trying to make predictions about how deforestation of the region will influence biodiversity outcomes, it may be useful to make broad-based average assumptions about a portion of the region, and then scale those assumptions up to encompass all of the forest. This is often productive because, first, we don't, and arguably can't, map the holistic totality of such a system using current methods and technologies, and second, because it dramatically simplifies the math that must be done to sort out how changed variables will impact the forest on average which is generally what we're aiming for anyway. Said another way, although we could theoretically figure out how to make exacting predictions about complex systems, it's often more practical to simplify those systems in a variety of ways to ensure we can get the predictions done sooner rather than later, and because the simplified average assumptions we make will be useful enough, will give us a starting point for assumptions about that larger system and with sufficient rapidity that we might actually be able to act on that information before the state of things changes. When it comes to assessing the bogglingly complex system of Earth, and more specifically, the temperature of the whole planet, one of the simplifying techniques we use is measuring for what's called the planetary equilibrium temperature, which is a theoretical temperature that a planet would have across its entire expanse if it were a perfect absorber of the energy being emitted from its star, and if that energy were then distributed evenly across the surface of the planet. This model, in the case of the Earth, then, ignores complicating factors like the atmosphere, reflectivity, and the like, assuming instead that all the heat sent from the Sun to Earth is absorbed. This simplification is often useful, especially as a starting point, for assessing the impact of a variety of variables on the heating or cooling of Earth and other solar system-based bodies, because it allows us to get the fundamental math in place for how much radiation from the sun makes it to Earth, defining a base-level amount of heat that is absorbed by the planet, or that could be absorbed by the planet. From there, we can add variables, like the reflectivity of the atmosphere, of clouds, of ice on the surface of the planet, all of which absorb or bounce some of that energy back off into space, and that gives us a decent ballpark range for all kinds of other systems that are powered by that sun-derived energy, which is a sprawling collection of things, from how plants photosynthesize to how much electricity we can generate from solar panels. This model is somewhat less useful, though, in understanding and arguably even taking into account the complexities of things, like polar amplification, which is a phenomenon we don't fully understand, but which we know happens, and which manifests as more intense change in polar regions, in the Arctic and Antarctic, than in non-polar regions which in practice means that if we see an average increase in global temperature levels, 
of, let's say, 1 degree Celsius, the increase in the Arctic will be relatively higher, maybe 1.3 degrees, maybe 2 degrees, maybe more. This tendency of the Arctic region to be more influenced by climate change than the rest of the planet, on average, was first officially written about in 1969 in a study entitled The Effect of Solar Radiation Variations on the Climate of the Earth. Another, similar study, was published that same year, this one entitled A Global Climatic Model Based on the Energy Balance of the Earth Atmosphere System. And one of the conclusions of both studies was that the nature of the Arctic and the role it plays in the regulation of global systems means that when its properties change, those changes have an outsized impact on the planet overall. And in the short term, the effects of climate shifts are amplified in this region due to that same centrality that it has for a great many global systems. Now, alarmingly, This means that because those effects are amplified, climate change happens at a faster overall pace in the Arctic and Antarctic. And because both influence global cycles, our models predicting the outcomes of climate change overall are almost certainly wrong, are too conservative. And it's more likely that a climate change cascade will take place because a small shift can become a very large shift very quickly due to the outsized effect such changes have in this region, and because of the subsequent influence this region has on the world. And we've seen this suspicion play out many times already, as the real-world impacts of climate change have been far greater than those that were predicted by climate scientists even just a few years ago, who weren't taking this Arctic and Antarctic amplification variable into account, or not as fully as we now suspect that they should have. One of the earliest explanations given for this observation is that ice and snow cover in the Arctic serves as a giant reflective mirror of sorts, reflecting a great deal of energy from the sun right back into space, which keeps the energy from becoming heat trapped within the atmosphere. As that ice and snow melts, though, the water and land underneath it are exposed, which, first, means that there's less reflective ice and snow to bounce that energy back into space. But second, it also means that instead of a mirror effect, we have an absorption effect. The darker water and land absorbing heat, pulling it in instead of bouncing it back out. So it's not a linear change with just the reflectiveness disappearing. It's a loss of reflectiveness and an increase in heat absorption. And there's a feedback loop built into this process. More heat absorbed means more ice and snow melting faster. So once this spiral starts, it's difficult to stop it. More heat, less ice and snow, less reflectiveness and more absorption, which leads to more melting, less ice and snow, less reflectiveness and more absorption, and on and on and on until that mirror-like surface is gone. Ocean circulation is also thought to be part of this cascade effect, a shift in the flow of currents and trade winds, influencing the amount of heat in the air and water. And the southern version of the Arctic polar amplification, the aptly named Antarctic amplification, influenced by its own ice and water melting system, lessens the effect of the Arctic-Antarctic equator warming and cooling seesaw effect, which is a complex way of saying that the mechanism that keeps energy moving from place to place around the planet which plays a role in balancing out our climate globally, slows down as this cycle increases and becomes less effective, 
leading to more dramatic swings in weather because of that loss of moderating winds and currents, but it also leads to more heat pockets that aren't circulated by these usual regulating systems to spread that energy out, and that can lead to more ice and snow melt, more heat-absorbing dark surfaces, and a further amplification of this spiral. There are a large number of other variables at play here, too, all of which are thought to, in large ways or small, influence climate change, particularly in the Arctic and Antarctic. One more that I'll mention here is that of water vapor, which is transported northward by the jet stream, and which then sticks around in the atmosphere due to the evaporative heat in the region, rather than being pulled downward and frozen into ice or snow, as would be the case in reliably cooler, non-cascade situations. Water vapor is a greenhouse gas, meaning it locks heat in rather than allowing it to reflect back out into space. So just like CO2 or methane, too much water vapor in the atmosphere can make a region hotter. And because more of that water vapor is ending up in the Arctic, it serves as just one more amplifier of this larger trend. More heat, more melting, more heat, more melting, and so on. What I'd like to talk about today is the impact this polar amplification is having in Arctic regions, and in particular, what's happening in one of the world's least densely populated land masses, where this effect is being felt more rapidly and more intensely than in most other regions around the world, at least so far. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled Rapid Arctic Meltdown in Siberia Alarms Scientists. Let's start by taking a quick look at Siberia. What we call Siberia today is a region that makes up a great deal of modern Russia. It spans 13.1 million square kilometers, which is about 5.1 million square miles, encompasses essentially all of what we might call Eurasia and Northern Asia, spanning everything from the Ural Mountains eastward. Russia is the world's largest country by area, with about one-eighth of the planet's human-inhabited landmass within their borders, and 77% of Russia is Siberia. There are somewhat different definitions and borders for Siberia, depending on the scope of the conversation you're having. Siberia is a federal district, one of eight that divide Russia. So it's a district that contains about 17 million people, and it was created as part of a redistricting movement in Russia in May of 2000. There's also the aforementioned 77% chunk of Russia that is also called Siberia, or sometimes geographic Russian Siberia. And then there's metanational Siberia, more commonly called North Asia, which includes the eastern coastline of the continent and a little extra chunk of land in the far west Ural mountain area, where today there are a few Russian federal subjects with a combined total population of close to 10 million people. So Siberia is a district, a larger geographic Russian region, and a still larger geographic non-national regional designation. Siberia, in its most expansive definition, despite containing 77% of Russia's landmass, only houses about 33 million people, which is less than a quarter of the country's total population. 
The population density is about three people per square kilometer, which is not quite eight people per square mile, which makes it one of the least densely populated places on the planet, alongside Australia, which is another region that has a few densely populated areas, then gobs of land that's not vacant, but close enough to vacant that it lowers the density numbers of the country precipitously. What most people know about Siberia, though, is that it has incredibly harsh winters. It's an ongoing joke, based on unfortunate and cruel reality, that if you mess up at your job, you'll be relocated to the Siberia office, something that apparently happened to people who pissed off the higher-ups in the Cold War-era Soviet power structure. The crux of this dark joke is that not only will you be away from everyone and everything, but you'll be bundled up wearing a dozen heavy coats at the same time and still, despite that, probably suffering from frostbite because of the January average temperatures of negative 25 degrees Celsius, which is about negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit. There were also, less humorously, labor camps, also called gulags, in Siberia. So this area was considered to be all by itself a punishing environment, but it also came to be associated with additional slavery-like punishment for enemies of the state during Russia's Soviet period. This association was not always the case, though. For much of history, this region was populated by sturdy, nomadic groups of people who mostly kept to themselves, while also periodically serving as a sort of home base for continent-conquering hordes like that of the Mongols, and before them, the Huns, the Scythians, and the Khitan. In the 16th century, European Russia, the western portion of the country, where the most populous cities exist even today, came into regular conflict with the post-Golden Horde Khanates and other governmental and pseudo-governmental structures in the east. The European Russians pushed eastward with soldiers and with traders, building forts along the roads and paths that they built, And one of these forts developed into a defensible fortress and was marked on a map published by Gerardus Mercator, the famed cartographer behind the Mercator map, as Sibier, which was said to be the name of the settlement, but also the territory surrounding that settlement. Some historians claim that the name for the larger region, Siberia, stemmed from this fortress's name, while others claim that the fortress was named for a Russification of the name of the indigenous group that lived thereabouts at the time, the Sibi, who caused a whole lot of trouble for the European Russians as they were trying to achieve their foothold in the area. This naming convention, then, it's claimed, should be traced back to this group, not to the fortress. Whatever the truth of the region's namesake, by the mid-17th century, the European Russians had extended their routes and forts all the way to the Pacific coast, And that eventual tradition of sending prisoners, undesirables, and other internal exiles away from more densely populated areas had already begun, though at a far lower rate and pace than would eventually become normal. The Trans-Siberian Railway was built in the years between 1891 and 1916, and this served to link folks living in remote parts of Siberia with the rapidly industrializing western part of Russia while also triggering a mass migration from the west to the far east. During that period, about 7 million people moved to Siberia from western Russia, 
intent on pursuing a frontier, on gaining cheap land for themselves, and hoping to make use of the abundant natural resources in the area. Forests, mines, and eventually petrochemical resources as well. The climate in the southern portion of Siberia, along the route of the Trans-Siberian Railway, is largely humid continental, which means it has cold winters but decently warm summers that last about four months. Go north, though, and you find a lot more taigas and tundras, the latter being the most inhospitable climate for most types of flora and fauna, with essentially no growing seasons and maybe a month of very cold summer, if you're lucky, while the former generally lines the tundra areas, serving as the coldest, tree-heavy climate zone, and one of the largest in terms of overall global land mass. So such areas are big, cold, and largely uninhabited, but they're also often densely packed with hardy trees like pines and spruces, and thus have quite a few other plants and animals as well, especially compared to tundras. So to summarize, Siberia has a rich history, though it's been generally underpopulated, filled with resources that are somewhat difficult to access and make use of, and further north, it's colder than most people would want to deal with in terms of quality of life, but also in terms of building functioning infrastructure. It's just too cold, too much of the time, to build anything that survives the climate, and to power the things that you do manage to build and maintain. Heating a single building requires a steady supply of abundant energy. What the aforementioned article from the Washington Post describes, then, is an alarming change to this status quo. A quote from that piece, quote, Wildfires are raging amid record-breaking temperatures. Permafrost is thawing, infrastructure is crumbling, and sea ice is dramatically vanishing. In Siberia and across much of the Arctic, profound changes are unfolding more rapidly than scientists anticipated only a few years ago. Shifts that once seemed decades away are happening now with potentially global implications, end quote. The article goes on to address some of the data that's been coming in from researchers around the world, on the ground and from satellites, noting a sudden and dramatic shift in the norms within Siberia, but most alarmingly in northern Siberia, up along the outskirts of and within the Arctic Circle, which is the northernmost part of the planet, mostly encompassing the Arctic Ocean, but also the top parts of Russia, Canada, Greenland, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and the U.S. state of Alaska. Only about 4 million people between all of these countries live within the Arctic Circle. Some of them are part of indigenous communities that have lived up there in Arctic conditions for many generations, surviving temperatures that range from, at times, around 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit during the very short summers, all the way down to negative 50 degrees Celsius or about negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit during the long winters while others are involved in industries that are location-dependent or working at research stations, monitoring Arctic wildlife and ice conditions. Both wildlife and ice have been dwindling in the Arctic of late, both types of loss causing a great deal of alarm, and both stemming from the same general causes, including those mentioned in the intro, the Arctic polar amplification cycle, where ice and snow melt, resulting in more heat being absorbed and trapped in the atmosphere, which melts more snow and ice, perpetuating a cycle that becomes stronger and stronger over time. 
The reliable bodies of ice are becoming less reliable then, and the wildlife that depend on those formerly reliable ice sheets and weather patterns are thus dying off. The story here is that this cycle seems to have reached a new milestone, a record temperature of 38 degrees Celsius, which is about 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, on June 20th of 2020. That temperature was recorded in Verkhoyansk, a Russian town about 3,000 miles or 4,830-ish kilometers west of Moscow, located in the Arctic Circle. This wasn't a one-off blip into triple digits, either. This record temperature was part of a larger heat wave in which the mercury stayed nearly that high for 11 days straight. And for comparison, the average temperature for June in this town is a mere 20 degrees Celsius, which is 68 degrees Fahrenheit, far lower than this record of, again, 38 and 100.4 degrees. Other towns thereabouts experienced similar surges in temperature, and the whole of Siberia was, on average, 10 degrees Celsius, or about 18 degrees Fahrenheit, higher than usual in 2020, which is fairly alarming. Consider that at the moment, the big fear is that the global climate will increase a mere 2 degrees Celsius on average, which is expected to result in untold amounts of climate and civilizational damage, from mass die-offs of species to mass migrations of humans due to rising sea levels, blighted formerly habitable landscapes, and a sudden dramatic change in agricultural viability. This seemingly small shift in average temperatures, is expected to dramatically realign our norms. And up in the Arctic, because of polar amplification effects, we may have already surpassed that expected change fivefold. And even if this bump has an irregular cycle with stunning new highs every few years, rather than more consistently, that could still speed up expected change for the rest of the planet, while also fundamentally changing these Arctic regions far sooner which, long-term, could prove to be beneficial for these Arctic regions in some ways, in the human habitability sense at least. Global climate change isn't a universally horrible thing for everyone equally. It mostly means that some areas will suffer astonishing losses in terms of wealth, biodiversity, and human life, while others will do comparably okay, and in some cases even better than they were doing before. Beneficial outcomes are expected to be more common in parts of Canada and Russia in particular, two countries that have vast stockpiles of mostly untapped natural wealth, including vast tracts of untouched, uninhabited land, that land climactically unsupportive of humans and human activities at the moment, but perhaps more friendly to our survival and to resource extraction efforts in the near future. If the global average temperatures shift, though, and if those new norms lock into place, there's a decent chance that most of our existing climate zones will shift as well, with many experts assuming they'll shift generally northward, so the regions that are currently breadbaskets in terms of growing food will cease to be farmable, at least at the level that they currently are, and regions north of those regions will become more agriculturally rich on average. If that turns out to be the case, current temperate regions could become too hot for most people. They'd become a bit like living in a desert, where we absolutely can survive, but generally not without additional cost and resource considerations. We'd be a lot more reliant on technology and abundant energy than is currently the case in these regions. 
while other regions, like the very cold northern portions of North America, Scandinavian countries, and Russia, could come out pretty well in terms of newly accessible and usable raw materials and useful, productive, livable land. That's one relatively long-term possibility here, at least. In the short term, though, this transition is likely to suck for pretty much everyone, very much including countries like Canada and Russia, which could be big winners eventually from all of this change, but not immediately. Because while eventually more of those areas could open up and become habitable and plantable in new ways, in the short term, they'll have to deal with infrastructure that was built for extremely cold conditions collapsing under new, warmer circumstances. Many of these regions are partly defined by their ice, by their winters, and by their permafrost, soil that is essentially held together by ever-present underground ice. When permafrost melts, it collapses the ground, turning everything into mud and muck that you can't walk, much less build on, and which tends to destroy all the buildings and other surface structures built atop it, all of the pipelines and other infrastructure running through it, and which tends to lead to a surge in disease and new pests, like mosquitoes, in regions that were previously too cold to sustain much life at all. These frozen regions, when unfrozen, also tend to release dense stockpiles of gases into the air, and to burn with abandon, and though portions of southern Siberia experience wildfires on a fairly regular basis already, new portions of the region further north are now on fire and expected to continue burning, in some cases on and off, starting up again each year, but in some cases year-round, with the fires moving underground, burning up raw materials that have been newly exposed by all that melting before re-emerging up to the surface after the cold snap has subsided in both cases leading to monstrous plumes of smoke and gases from thousands of miles of burning fossil fuels, dead trees and such, but also carbon-rich soil that's a bit like peat and how it contains all kinds of condensed burnable carbon, the exposure of which results in vastly more CO2 wafting up into the atmosphere. There's an estimated 1,460 billion to 1,600 billion metric tons of organic carbon stored in the soil in Arctic regions, from Canada to Alaska to Russia, which amazingly is twice the total amount of CO2 currently in the atmosphere around the world. And as that permafrost melts, exposing that carbon, it can be released through mere exposure to the air, and it can be released through exposure to these fires. A report from 2019 found that already permafrost-based ecosystems are likely releasing about 1.1 to 2.2 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere each year due to the melting and the burning that's already taking place, which, for context is about as much CO2 as Japan and Russia released into the atmosphere, respectively, over the course of 2018. So while there may be long-term benefits for some of these regions, in terms of the shifting climate, opening up new land for resource extraction, agriculture, and human habitation, in the short term, these ecosystems are falling apart and dramatically speeding up the greenhouse gasification of the atmosphere, which means rather than landing in a new normal that's good for some and bad for others, the global average temperature could shoot right past a new habitable resting point and end up someplace fairly 
universally devastating. If these runaway cycles are not slowed or stopped at some point in the near future, because each new fire, each new record temperature, each new melt-off is harmful to the current state of things unto itself, but even worse because of how it amplifies those other ongoing cycles. There are gobs of other consequences here, ranging from Arctic region military conflicts with nations lining the Arctic Ocean vying for newly exposed mineral wealth and the desire to control trade routes, to issues related to mass migrations of human beings, invasive species, and new diseases, which are suddenly able to survive and thrive in new parts of the world. But the direct, immediate consequences, I would argue, are potent enough to warrant additional attention and concern. The secondary ramifications are almost too big to think about, but the primary ones could themselves require a rethinking of everything we know about our ecosystems, about food cycles, about resources, and how we set up societies, and how we define and treat things like national sovereignty, all at a time in which regions are becoming uninhabitable or borderline uninhabitable at an increasing rate. Some scientists have called the Arctic and Antarctic regions the canaries in the climate coal mine, providing us with early warning systems showing us what the rest of the world can expect to face in the coming years and decades. If that's the case, based on what's happening now, we've got some pretty serious planning to do. podcast that I'd like to recommend today is one that I discovered a few weeks ago, and it's called You're Wrong About, and it's made by a couple of journalists named Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. I'm not typically into podcasts where people sit around and talk to each other, but Sarah and Michael do a wonderful job at keeping it right on the line of being endearing and chatty, but also incredibly informative. And the whole premise of the show is to take a look at stories, especially media stories, that captured our attention, and to dive deeper into them to try to explain some of the facets that tended to get lost in the conversation, or which emerged later, things that wouldn't have necessarily made it into the scrum that arose when those stories were first on air. So things like the O.J. Simpson trial the Stonewall Uprising, and the pop-cultural hubbub around Coco, the gorilla. These are the sorts of topics that they take a look at, they revisit them, and then one of them explains to the other all of the research that they've done, presenting a narrative of the more complete picture that those of us on the receiving end of the media or pop-cultural versions of these stories were not necessarily aware of or exposed to. If any of that sounds interesting to you, point your podcasting app at You're Wrong About. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com or by searching for Brain Lenses wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. (music) 